Okay. If we can get her by in, it's time to get started. Get somebody to shut those doors back there. I'd appreciate it. Welcome to session number 10 of the parables of Jesus. And uh, let's, let's begin in prayer. Father, I pray tonight that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Tonight we will cover um, some of the last parables that you gave on this earth before you went to the cross and entered your kingdom. And I pray tonight that uh, these prophetic parables uh, in the last weeks of your ministry would have great power and give us a revelation tonight, a revealing, something we didn't know, something that we would have never known had you not revealed it. So tonight we ask you to uh, open our minds to understand the scriptures that we might know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me say it clearly, these last three weeks, uh, tonight and the next two sessions, our Jesus is, it's pretty clear in the scripture that these are the, the, the final parables that he gives. They're sequential. The final parables he gives before he goes to the cross. It's interesting to me that they're becoming prophetic. And you're going to see what that means in a moment. They're coming, not, not just a revelation of heaven, but a revelation of future events that will lead us into heaven. This first one really is, uh, you need ears to hear, but this first one, um, this is like this, this parable that summarizes the gospel. So let's just jump in. Before I read it, I want you to know that as you get to the tenant farmer category, it's you, it's me. We're tenant farmers on this piece of property the Lord has set us down on. We're the tenant farmers. Mark 12, verse 1. And then Jesus began teaching them with stories or parables. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to the tenant farmers, and he moved to another country. Okay, pause. Anybody see the story yet? Okay. We're the tenant farmers. God has planted a vineyard. You can call it earth. And he leases it to us, and, and then it's ours for a while. Okay? Verse 2. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of the servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him, sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him, beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. In other words, it's progressively getting worse, isn't it? Others he sent were either beaten or killed. Now, who might, who might they be? The prophets of the Old Testament. And what did the, the landowner want when he sent the prophets? The praise and the glory. He's not necessarily wanting the crop. He's wanting to be glorified as the one who gave you the crop. Give him his, what is due him, the honor that is due the landowner. But instead of honoring the prophets, what did they do? They killed the prophets. Until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him. All the prophets have been murdered or thrown out of town. The only one left is the son, so he finally sent him thinking, surely they'll respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. Now, what would the estate be? The earth. Let's kill him and we'll, we'll take over this place down here, right? Ooh. Verse 8, so they grabbed him, murdered him through his body out of the vineyard. Now, I need to add something else, too. Jesus is telling this. I, I said this in the last weeks before he goes to the cross. He's prophesying his own death. Now, they don't have a clue when he's saying that. 
But he's prophesying his own death. So they grabbed him, murdered him, threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? Jesus asked. I'll tell you what he will do. He will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Here's where you get the gospel. And here's where you get the prophecy. I'll tell you what he's going to do. He will kill, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Now, let me just go on and plant the seed. This will be the transfer of attention from the time of Israel to the time of the church. From the Jewish people to the Gentiles. Are you with me? Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected. Now the builders were the Jewish people. The stone they rejected has now become the cornerstone. And let me insert the cornerstone of the church that will now come after they kill the son. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. The religious leaders, so here, he just told this parable to who? He's not telling it to Gentiles, right? There's no Gentiles in this scene. He's telling it to the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. You think they didn't know? He's talking about us. We're the tenant farmers. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they let him, uh, left him, and he went away. Can you see the entire gospel message of Jesus in this parable? Because I can. The Jews that will now go to the Gentiles, he gave them the chance to receive the prophets. And when the prophets came and gave, and the word of the Lord is, and they kept saying, no, we reject the word of the Lord. We reject it. Receiving the word of the Lord from the prophet is to receive God himself and to acknowledge him as the giver. And you're just a tenant farmer. But they killed the prophets. God sent the son. They killed him. Thinking somehow or another we can take over this place. We don't need him anymore. So let's read, I want to do something. In light of that, let's read the Old Testament prophet Isaiah description. It, it goes in line with the vineyard and connects the dots. Why? So go back up to this parable, Mark 12, verse 1. A man planted a vineyard. So that's New Testament Jesus' parable. So let's hold that in our mind and let's go back to Isaiah chapter 5. And Israel is the original tenant farmer, okay? And I want you, I want you to see how these two stories connect. Isaiah is like 750 years before Christ. So it's 750 years earlier. Isaiah writes this in chapter 5. Now, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower. Isn't it interesting because there's a, a watchtower, a lookout tower up in Mark 12. He's got the similar, their vineyard and they both got watchtowers. Built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for the harvest of sweet grapes. But the grapes that grew in this vineyard were bitter. Now you people of Jerusalem and Judah, now we know we're talking about the Jewish people, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have already done? What more could I have done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. And remember that because I'm going to get into that in a few minutes. It's prophecy. This is also prophecy. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. It's the same story, just in a different format. I'm going to tear down the hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down the walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel, in case there's any question, the nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. That's pretty black and white, right? The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. 
He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. The vineyard is the seed of Abraham. The vineyard is Israel. They were to become the children of God. They were to be the Jewish people, the children of Abraham are the children of God. But something went wrong. The sweet grapes became sour and bitter, and the master tore down the blessed vineyard. When they murdered the son, it's the turning point. Remember, I sent these, uh, I sent the prophets, and then I sent the son. And when they murdered the son, um, the stone the builders rejected. So I want you to understand where these connections come. They sent the prophets, they rejected them. Then they sent the, the son. Surely they'll respect the son. But they didn't even respect the son. Let's kill him. We can become the heirs in his place. When that event happened, Jesus' parable says this. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? The stone they rejected was Jesus. The builders were the Jewish people. Now, what's the cornerstone? It's the church. It's the, what begins after, it's what begins after the Jewish people reject Christ. Jerusalem and the Jewish people were scattered. From Babylon and Babylonian, there's two scatterings. We went through this in great detail during the Jerusalem series. In 586 and eventually Rome in 70 AD, two dispersions. So let me just give you some numbers. From 70 AD, which was the last time the Jewish people were assembled uh, after the time of Christ, in 70 AD, AD, it all comes crashing down. And, and if you go from that time to 1948, May 14th of 1948, that's 1878 years this vineyard had collapsed upon itself. Okay? It had collapsed upon itself. And there is no Israel. There is no Israel. The vineyard destruction was also prophesied by the prophet Micah. So Jesus has told the parable. Isaiah has also told the story. They're all prophetic. And now Micah, he's also Old Testament. Let's read it, Micah 3.8. But as for me, I am filled with power. With the Spirit of the Lord, I am filled with justice, strength to boldly declare Israel's sin and rebellion. Listen to me, you leaders of Israel. You hate justice and you twist that which is right. Now, if you go back to that Isaiah scripture, that's why he tore down the vineyard, because they refused justice. They didn't want to do what's right. You are building Jerusalem on a foundation of murder and corruption. Your rulers make decisions based on bribes. Your priests teach God's law, but only for a price. Your prophets won't prophesy unless they're paid. And yet all of you claim to depend upon the Lord. No harm can come to us, you say, for the Lord is here among us. You remember that? The temple, the temple. Nothing bad can happen to us because we have the temple. They didn't realize the temple was empty. Because of you, this is Micah's prophecy through, from God, because of you, Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. What do all these have in common? What, what are all these? The Matthew, the, all of them having, there's going to be a great fall. And after the fall, the stone that the builders rejected will become a cornerstone. And you're living in that time. It's the church age. But, but that will come to an end too. Um, verse 12 again. Because of you, Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. A thicket will grow on its heights where the temple now stands. So... I told you that in 1948, Israel was reestablished as a nation, 1878 years after the Romans tear it down. But there's another number. It was in 1967 that Israel finally takes Jerusalem that, go back up here and look. It says, Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. A thicket will grow on the heights where the temple now stands. In 70 AD, this is fulfilled. In 70 AD, everything's gone. And there is no, um, 
There are no Jews living in Jerusalem. They're either dead or scattered across the earth. That's um, 1,897 years of nothing. That's a long time. 1800 from 70 AD to 1967 is, is 1,897 years. And you have to say, okay, I'm reading all of this prophetic, uh, the parable, and I'm reading Micah, and I'm reading Isaiah. Is there any hope for Israel? Baruch HaVabashim Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that, I'm not speaking in tongues. I'm just doing the Hebrew version of that scripture. Matthew 23, 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. What, what's the parable about? You killed the prophets and stoned God's messengers. How often I, so here comes the son. You killed the prophets, stoned his messengers. I, how often I, the son, wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her, beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. Now, it's about 37 to 40 years. Different people have different dates. From he says this. Look at verse 38. Your house is abandoned and desolate. 37 to 40 years after he makes this statement, Jerusalem will be burnt to the ground by the Roman emperor. For I tell you this, you will never see me again. Where's he at when he says this? He is standing in Jerusalem making a prophetic announcement to Jerusalem, fulfilling every one of these prophecies that I've covered tonight. You will never see me again until. In other words, let me rephrase his statement. You, the next time you see me, you'll be saying something different than today. You will never see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is in, in Hebrew, Baruch haba Jesus didn't say the people in Jerusalem will never see him again. That's not what he says. You will not see me again until you say this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, they'll have to be in Jerusalem for that to take place. So what does that mean? For 1,897 years, that couldn't happen. Because for 1,897 years, they weren't in Jerusalem. So how are they going to say Baruch HaBashem Adonai in the Hebrew language until they're in Jerusalem? You see why it's so important? What you're seeing in this generation is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that he made. Um, the Jews would need, be, need to be back in Jerusalem for this to be fulfilled. And it happened in our generation. And let me just say, one of my daily prayers is, Lord, may we be the until generation. You will not see me again until. And may we, may I live, and I believe I do. If you know me, you know I'm not bluffing. I believe that I live in the until generation. And that's how I plan on going out. Jesus said, didn't you ever read in this in the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. Okay, there's our first parable for tonight. It's interesting to me that this next parable, uh, the budding fig tree, does this to that one. It connects. Now, I told you we're in the final weeks of his ministry. So now we're going to do the budding fig tree parable. Um, it's in Mark 13, 23, and I'm going to give you some context. Uh, it's very long scripture. It is the second longest teaching of Jesus in the Bible. It's called the Olivet Discourse. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded teaching of Jesus. This is the second longest teaching of Jesus in the Bible. So there's a whole lot, but let me just tell you what it is. He's telling everybody what it's going to be like when he comes back. That's what the Olivet Discourse is. Uh, he does it on a two, he only does it to a group of about 12 people. It's not a big crowd. He's on, the, they call it the Olivet Discourse because he's on the Mount of Olives and he's got his, just his, his main guys around him. And he, it looks like a Tuesday. It looks like a Tuesday before he'll die on a Friday. Okay, so it's just a few days before the cross. Um, and it is prophetic. And it connects the evil tenant farmer's parable 
to this one. Watch out. I have warned you ahead of time. At that time, after the anguish of those days, now I'm going to kind of insert some stuff as I go. After the anguish of those days, and I believe that is the seven-year tribulation. Are you with me? Watch out. After the tribulation, after the seven-year tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give no light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, if you go study Revelation, you will see why I say that is the detail event of the tribulation. Then, what happens after the tribulation? Then, it's sequential. Everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. When is then? After the tribulation. After the anguish of those days. After the sun is darkened. After the moon gives no light. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. Now stop for a moment. I believe that there are two returns of Christ. One of them, he will stand upon the earth. It is after the tribulation, it is this scene. There is another one, seven years earlier, that he, the Bible says his feet do not stand on the earth. It says that he comes in the clouds, and those who are in the earth rise and meet him in the air. And those who are alive at that time rise and meet him in the air. He doesn't come to the earth in that scene. This scene, he is coming to the earth. What is the gap between the two? At least seven years. Maybe a little bit longer than seven years, but at least seven years. And he will send out his angels. Stay with me. This is important. And he will send out his angels to gather the chosen ones from all over the world. Is that the church? No. It is the Jewish people that have been evangelized during the tribulation, and it is tribulation saints. That's who he's sending them out for in this scene. The church left earlier. Uh, he will send out his angels to gather the chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth to heaven. Now, here comes. Here comes the parable. Now, learn a lesson from the fig tree. What is the context? Do not miss the context. What I've just explained to you is the context. Now that you know what all of that is, learn a lesson from the fig tree. Okay, I'm listening. Do I have ears to hear? When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer's near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, what things? Well, he just told you these things. It's the tribulation stuff. When you see all these things, and by the way, the that chapter doesn't begin with verse 33. There's a whole bunch of stuff above that. When you, so you got to add all that to it. When you see all these things, and he's talking about the return. When you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. So when somebody says, I believe that the return of Christ is imminent or near, and you look at them like you're a strange person, you're actually refuting what Jesus says is possible through the Holy Spirit. I'd be real careful about you. Because he just said... You can know that his return is very near right at the door. Now, I believe that is specifically to those who are filled with the Holy Spirit and they have ears to hear. Verse 30, here it comes. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Hmm. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day. So you see, what if you're questioning, what's he talking about? However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know what time will come, uh, when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. So here comes the question. Is the fig tree in Jesus' parable Israel? It's a big question. Now, I know there's a lot of people who got different opinions, but I'm going to ask some questions in search for that. Was the rebirth of Israel as a nation in 1948 the budding of the fig tree? 
Now, I believe it is. I'm not going to get into an argument with anybody. And also, you don't have a microphone. I do. <laughs> so we'll set that aside. Are we living in the generation of the fig tree? When Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. So let's just stop for a moment and let that ponder for a moment. You got two supernatural events. How could a nation that is gone for 2,000 years reappear in 1948? And how could it, just a few years later, 1967, get Jerusalem in a war that lasted six days in which they were so outnumbered, there's no way humanly possible they could have won the war. But yet they won the war. And by the way, in 1948, when May 14th, when they declared their independence in, Jerusalem, in Israel, every Arab nation that surrounded them declared war on the next day. Who could do this? Who, could, who can do this? Nobody could do this. So I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. So let's do something. Let's look at Matthew's account of the same Jesus parable. And let's examine its context because it adds a little bit. Matthew gives a little bit of different information. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens. And there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So I believe this is after the tribulation again. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather the chosen ones from all over the world. Let me say it again. I believe that's a specific reference to the Jewish people. During the tribulation, he raises up 144,000 Jewish evangelists. It's all in the book of Revelation. And he sends them out to evangelize the Jewish people after the church age has closed. And anybody Gentile, perhaps, that comes to Christ during the tribulation... They will gather the chosen ones from all over the world. That's who he's talking about. From the farthest ends of the earth of heaven. And then in the middle of that, he says, now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way. What's he doing? What's the context of all this? He's putting this fig tree as the measurable of these events. In the same way, when you see all these things, and by the way, Matthew 24 has a whole lot of stuff. When you see all these things, you can know his return is very near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Is the sprouting, budding fig tree a sign? that will immediately precede the return of Christ. Now, I want to say it again. The return of Christ, I believe, is in two scenes. One is for the bride, the church. He comes, we meet him in the air, in the clouds. He does not come, his feet do not stand on the Mount of Olives in that first scene. Read the scripture. In the second scene, he comes, his feet stand on the Mount of Olives. And at that point, he cast Satan into the abyss for a thousand years. And a, a millennial reign of Christ begins on the earth, a thousand-year reign of Christ. The question is, is the sprouting, budding fig tree a sign that will immediately precede the return of Christ? Very near, right at the door. Was 1948 and 1967 a sign from God to the world? If you read Matthew 24, it is clear that Jesus says that all these things that he has announced about the great tribulation will be fulfilled during the generation that sees the fig tree blossom and sprout. Those are his words, not mine. He says that generation. I tell you the truth. Here's what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. This generation... What things? The things mentioned before the sprouting fig tree of Matthew 24. So what does the fig tree symbolize? Is the fig tree a symbol of the nation of Israel? If so, today we are living in the time and the generation of the sprouted fig tree. 
Now, I'm going to tell you up front, I make no apology. I believe that that is exactly where we are. We are the generation that is living in the day of the sprouted, budded fig tree, Israel. Is Israel and the rebirth of Israel 1948 the fig tree? So let's look. Let's go back. I want you to know, did you just make that up? No, I didn't just make that up. Jeremiah 24, uh, this is written, this is about uh, Israel's exile, the first exile in Babylon that began in 586 B.C. And then the Lord gave me this message. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said. Now, this is important. We got good figs and we got bad figs in this story. And we're talking about a fig tree, this budding. Is it Israel? In this scene, Israel's gone into Babylonian captivity. The Lord, the God of Israel says, the good figs represent the exiles. That's the people he sent to Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in this group. They represent the exiles I sent from Judah to the land of the Babylonians. I will watch and care for them and I will bring them back here again. And that just speaks volumes to me. The sign of the fig tree in this scene is people who were left and returned. They left and I brought them back. Now this is Babylon, okay? That's, what's the fig tree here? I will watch over and care for them for 2,000 years, and I will bring them back here again. Was the Babylonian exile a preview of what we saw in 1948? I think, yeah. If you, watch, if you came to the Jerusalem series, you would have a hard time arguing against that idea. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord, and they will be my people, and I'll be their God, and they'll return to me wholeheartedly. Now, that's the good figs. All right? That's the good figs. But there's bad figs in this story, too. But the bad figs, the Lord, the Lord said, represent King Zedekiah of Judah. Now, I don't have time to go into all that, but I'm going to give you the short version. King Zedekiah is the last king, the last king of Judah from the lineage of King David. He's the last one. He's the final one. And he refused to listen to God's messenger, Jeremiah. You know what the last thing that happened to Zedekiah was? He took Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar took Zedekiah, captured him, brought him out, and they put him in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said, and this is so important, um, he's in the lineage of David. He's the... He's the the lineage of David. All the kings of Judah have, are coming from the lineage of David. And he's the king that should be carrying on the lineage that would lead, you know, up to Messiah, right? The king of kings. So he's got these boys, which should have been the next king after him. So Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to turn uh, Zedekiah and look at your sons and while you're looking at your sons, I'm going to kill every one of them in front of you. And then I'm going to put your eyes out so that the last thing you will ever see on this earth will be the lineage of David killed. There will be no king in Judah and no king of David in Judah. I killed every one of you. You see, can you see this? And... and Zedekiah got in that position because he refused to listen to prophet Jeremiah. Okay, but the bad figs, the Lord said, represent King Zedekiah of Judah. His officials, all the people left in Jerusalem, and those who live in Egypt, I will treat them like bad figs too rotten to eat. These figs are the illustration of God for those who are regathered into the land after the dispersion. What are we making such a big deal out of tonight? In 1948, there was a massive... Well, 1948, there was a place for them to come back to. And, and in 1948, it's estimated there were 700,000 Jews living in Israel. 700,000. Today, there's 7 million. Can you make, can you make this story up? 
Now there's 7 million. Hosea 9, verse 10. The Lord says, O Israel, when I first found you, it was like finding fresh grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the first ripe figs of season. But then they deserted me for Baal Peor, giving themselves to their shameful idol, to that shameful idol. Soon they became vile, as vile as the God they worship. My point in all of this is, can you see that God is connecting figs, fig trees to Israel and Israel's uh, exile and Israel's return? Yes, he's doing it. The joy of seeing the first figs turned into sadness as they turn to idolatry. All of this is a reference to Israel. Let me give you one more. In Joel 1 verse 6, a vast army of locusts has invaded Israel, my land. A terrible army, too numerous to count. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, its fangs like those of a lioness. It has destroyed my grapevines and ruined my, notice he says my fig trees. Stripping their bark and destroying it, leaving the branches white and bare. This time, Joel's Joel's fig trees are a specific reference to Israel. My land, my fig trees, they are being invaded. So, is it reasonable? Is it reasonable to assume that God's description of a budding, blossoming fig tree is a nation called Israel? Yeah, it's very reasonable. Not convinced? What about the New Testament teaching of Jesus? Does Jesus refer to Israel as a fig tree? Not convinced? Well, let's go to Luke 13. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Now stop for a moment. Anybody see it yet? This connects to the parable I read earlier. That he planted a vineyard and he wanted sweet grapes. He, he made tenant farmers to give him glory, but they killed the prophets and went after the son. This story, all of it lines up. A man planted a fig tree in his garden, came again and again. There was no fruit on it, but he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to the gardener, I've waited three years. Three years is an important number. Anybody want to guess what three years is? How long was Jesus in his public ministry? Three years. I waited three years. There hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. Whoa. You got ears to hear? It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, Sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention, plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. What do you think? Who do you think Jesus is referring to? The Jewish people? There is, this is where the whole story gets most interesting to me. I have tonight on purpose left out all the context of the fig tree in Matthew 24. I did that on purpose. To fully illustrate the fig tree, you must see what happened between Jesus and the fig tree the day before. As I read this from Matthew 21, I want you to keep in mind that Jesus' teaching that I just read a moment ago from Luke 13, a man planted a fig tree in this garden, gave it three years to produce fruit. What I'm about to read to you right now is the day before Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse where he said that. What happened the day before that? In reality, Matthew 21, 18. In the morning, as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, he was hungry. And he noticed a fig tree beside the road. He went over to see if there were any figs, but there were only leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the fig tree withered up. The disciples were amazed when they saw this and asked, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus put a curse 
on the fig tree. Israel. Is the fig tree Israel? What did he just do? He does this the day before he describes the future when the fig tree will one day bud with new life. He's the one that stopped it and he's the one that announced it will one day re-blossom. I can tell you that three days after he cursed the fig tree, he was crucified. I can tell you that about 37 to 40 years later, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, and dispersed the Jews around the world. God's vengeance came. Judgment Day came. It's called the Dispora, the dispersion. The Jews were scattered around the world. The fig tree was cursed. It is my opinion, very strong opinion, that Jesus' Tuesday curse of the fig tree is a prophetic sign that God would set the Jewish nation aside and make room for the Gentile church age to begin. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, and it is beautiful in his sight. The church, the bride, is beautiful in his sight. Luke 21, 24, again, the Olivet Discourse. They will be killed by the sword and sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. Now, I believe this is a prophetic announcement of what will happen in the church age. Okay, this is, this is way in the future. They will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. What's he talking about? Jerusalem's going to be trampled. So that means what? The Gentiles are coming in are going to run the Jews off until the time of the Gentiles comes to an end. What do you think the time of the Gentiles is? You're in it. It's the church age. God set the Jews aside because of their barrenness. Their barrenness. The fig tree was not bearing fruit for the gardener. And the fruit they had bore was what? Sour, bitter grapes. The fig tree, Israel as a nation, had rejected their Messiah. And that brought the curse, God's vengeance. And it brought the church age. It brought the time of the Gentiles to begin. Now, where do I get that? <clears throat> Romans 11, 11. Let me, let me say this. You want something easy to remember? 9, 11. Romans 9 through 11. Go home, study Romans 9, 11. If you want to, if you want to help yourself understand what we're covering tonight, study 9, 10, and 11 of the New Testament book of Romans. I'm only going to do a little bitty part of it. Did God's people, the Jews and Israel, did they stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share da, 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 when they finally accept it. Something's coming. You think he's regathering all of them to the promised land for no reason? When they finally accept it, that day... I don't believe that day will come until the church is moved. I am saying this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as an apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have so that I might save some of those Jews, some of them. For since there, the Jewish rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, us Gentiles in the church age, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It'll be life to those who were dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. 
Just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branch will be too. 2,000 years ago, the fig tree Israel was cursed for bearing no fruit. 2,000 years ago, the day of God's vengeance brought the diaspora. It began in 70 AD. But 74 years ago, on May 14th, 1948, something happened. I believe with all of my heart, the fig tree began to bud and blossom. 55 years ago, I was 10 years old. Israel took possession of Jerusalem for the first time in 2,000 years. And during that 74 years, Jews from all over the world are being regathered. Now they're at 7 million. It's called in the, they call it in Israel the Aliyah, Aliyah, which describes when the Jews finally go home to Israel. I read just recently that the last remaining, you can go look it up. In fact, I challenge you to do so. The last remaining Jewish family living in the South Sudan made Aliyah to Israel. They're coming from all over the earth. And this is also interesting. They're coming in unbelief. But they're coming. They don't even know why they're coming. But they're coming. From all over the world. They're coming. Why? They're coming. The last Jewish family living in the South Sudan has now relocated to Israel. All of this was written down. The Holy Scriptures will all be fulfilled. It is unstoppable. Whether you have ears to hear it or not will become irrelevant. It is unstoppable. But God wants us to see it. He told us in advance so that if you had ears to hear, you would, you would be able to see it. And you would make it a great evangelist because you could tell other people who can't hear and can't see so that they can hear and they can see. What's unstoppable? I'm just going to give you a snapshot. It's unstoppable. This was written 750 years before Christ or somewhere in there. Isaiah 27. Has the Lord struck Israel as he struck her enemies? Has he punished her as he punished them? No. But he exiled Israel to call her to account. She was exiled from her land as though blown away in a storm from the east. The Lord did this to purge Israel's wickedness, to take away all of her sin. And as a result, all the pagan altars will be crushed to dust. No Asherah poles or pagan shrines will be left standing. The fortified towns will be silent and empty. And houses abandoned. The streets overgrown with weeds. Calves will graze there chewing on twigs and branches. The people of Israel are like the dead branches of a tree. Broken off and used for kindling beneath the cooking pots. Israel is a foolish and stupid nation. That's not very nice. I wonder what he says of us today. Is a foolish and stupid nation, for its people have turned away from God. Therefore, the one who made them will show them no pity or mercy. Now, I'll tell you what, let me say something. I am glad it does not stop there. Yet the time will come. When he will gather them together. Like hand-picked grain. One by one, he will gather them. From the Euphrates River. Do you see the mercy? A stupid nation. And yet he's going to bring them back. From the Euphrates River to the east, to the brook of Egypt in the west. In that day, the great trumpet will sound. Many who were dying in the exile in Assyria and Egypt will return to Jerusalem to worship the Lord on his holy mountain. Israel was like a dead branch, a cursed fig tree, but something has happened. And it happened in our generation this budding of a cursed fig tree is a supernatural event from God. I've had scoffers 
tell me that the signs of Matthew 24 have been going on for thousands of years? And I say, yes, sir. But the fig tree only began budding 74 years ago. And that makes our generation very, very different. Do you know that summer is near? You know, Jesus said, when you see these things, you'll know that summer is near. It's right at the door. Can you interpret the signs this past Sunday? I quoted um, Jesus saying, you fools. You can interpret the weather. You know that when the, when the wind comes out of the west, you have the certain, when the clouds do this, you have this, and you have, you have this. You know, you're not to interpret the weather, you fools, but you can't interpret the signs. You don't have ears to hear. One last one. One last one. The faithful watching servant. I told you all of these are going to do this tonight. At least they do it for me. I don't know if they do it for you, but they do it for me. This just puts this whole story together. The faithful watching servant. Matthew, uh, Mark 13. The coming of the Son of Man. All of them are talking about the same thing, right? Aren't all of them talking about the same thing? The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do. And told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. Everybody stop for a moment. Who's going on a long trip? Jesus, he went to the right hand of the Father. Before he left, did he give you instructions? Yes, he gave me instructions. He's been adding to those through the Holy Spirit as I read the Word ever since then. Okay, we got that part of the story? Jesus has gone on a long trip. Before he left, he gave us instructions. Stay with me. Verse 35. You too must keep watch. For you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone. Watch for him. Our master Jesus has gone away on a long trip. He left the earth to tenant farmers. It's been some 2,000 years ago for us. He gave us clear instructions before he left. We are to be at work in the preparation for the future occupation of his kingdom. That's our job. In the Great Commission, Jesus gives us this instruction. Now, now listen, I believe every person in this room tonight will be held accountable to some degree to these instructions specifically given to the church before he went home. That's me and that's you. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on the earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What age? The church age. I'll, I'll, the Holy Spirit is the only thing that makes the church the church. Okay? So, what's the parable about? The, son of, uh, the coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by a story of a man going on a long trip. Before he left, he gave everybody some instructions. Okay, there's your first batch. How you doing? How you doing? Anybody? Would you be considered to be asleep because you have no intention of being a part of this instruction? We all have been given an assignment. You think it only applies to me? It applies to every one of us. Mark, let's go to the next one. More instructions before he left. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe is going to be condemned. So what's at stake? What's at stake is that some are going to believe they're going to, they're going to be saved. Some are not going to believe and they're going to, they're going to be condemned. Luke 12, 35. Again, more instructions, more instructions. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. And then you'll be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth, and I got to tell you, this one, next one, 
I have never been able to grasp this. I'm just going to make a confession. I cannot grasp this. I believe it, but I cannot grasp it. Nothing in my mind can make me grasp this. He says, the servants who are ready and waiting when he returns. And I want you to visualize, I believe that is very literal. Very literal. That there are people on the earth that when he comes, they're not going to be, <gasps> they're going to be, I've been waiting for a long time. I have been watching for you my whole life. It's going to be these people who have this expectancy, this sense of passionate urgency. The purpose of my life has been to be carrying out this great commission while I wait for you. Right? To make disciples, to share this wonderful good news about the resurrection of the dead. And then he says, the servants who are ready and waiting for his return, I tell you the truth. He himself, Jesus, will seat them. Jesus will put on an apron and Jesus will serve them as they sit and eat. I don't want him to serve me. I want to serve him. But I can tell you what he said. Do you want to be in this family? I do. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. It was a couple years ago, I came up with this, just in my mind, this simple thing. I believe with all of my heart, who's going in the rapture? Who, I believe there's a rapture coming. I believe that there is a caught up event that is coming soon. Who's going to get caught up? All who are expecting him will leave. That's it. I believe that will be the definition. And you think I made that up? Can you read? Everybody who is expecting him will be leaving when he comes. You've been, you've been expecting him. Let me prove it to you. He says that in that event, there will, he will come like a thief in the night. The thief in the night people aren't leaving. They're not leaving. Because what's the thief in the night mean? If you thought it was a thief in the night, you'd be up, right? You'd be watching. You'd have your shotgun at the door. You'd be ready. You wouldn't, the thief in the night means you were watching. But he comes like a thief in the night. To, that's, that's what it'll be in these people. But it won't be like that in these people. These people, I've been waiting for you. I've been expecting you. You're not a thief in the night to me. I've been expecting this. In fact, I thought you'd be here by now. So tonight I ask you, do you have ears to hear? Every one of these parables have leaned in that same direction, haven't they? This was Jesus' message in the parables. And I'm going to give you one last scene. There's a church in Philadelphia. I think it's the next to the last of the seven churches. But here's the point. It's not about which one it is. It's a church. He set aside Israel. He set aside the chosen people. He set them aside. Put a curse that stopped the timeline. And he brought in what has now been 2,000 years of a time for the Gentile world to come to salvation. The church, the Gentiles. The church. And what does he say to the church? Um, seven of them get a message from him in Revelation. I'm going to read one of them. Philadelphia. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere. I will protect you, church, from the time, the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to the world. You tell me what you think that is. It's the seven-year tribulation. You want to know why I believe the church goes out before the tribulation? There's one piece of it right there. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere. This only applies to believers. It doesn't apply to somebody who goes to church. It goes to, applies to someone who is the church. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I, Jesus, will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world. It's a worldwide event. That's why I'm convinced it's the tribulation. It's going to come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. There's the expectancy. 
Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they'll never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be the citizens in the, citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. And here it comes, and anyone with ears to hear. How many times have we heard that in these sessions? Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. I didn't read it, and I should have put it in there, but I think I was out of room on that page. There was, he said this to the church at Philadelphia in that same context. Go look it up. He says, um, I know that you have little strength. So he's, you, you persevered. You're, you're sheep among wolves, okay? I, I get it. I know that you have little strength. Um, but two things you did, two things, two things. You kept my word and you would never deny my name. Two things. And then, then he says, and because of that, I will protect you from the tribulation. You kept my word and you refused to deny my name. I will protect you from the tribulation. Do you have ears to hear? Father, in Jesus' name, we give you thanksgiving for these promises. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.